Hey, and welcome to Real Talk with Nina. I'm Nina, and as usual, shit is about to get real. I have Chrissy Delfonso on with me today. She is the Assistant Director of the LGBT Resource Center at Cornell University, and she is on here as the expert on all things polyamory. I was introduced to Chrissy by her mother, actually, and I am super excited to speak with her because I know I have a lot of questions about polyamory because I'm not in a polyamorous relationship. I've read about it. I research it because I'm a total sex geek, but the reality is I don't live it. And I, I'm okay saying, I don't know everything about this. So for me and what I do on this podcast is I really bring guests that can speak from experience because I can't possibly speak from experience on everything I talk about. So I will bring her on now. Hey, Chrissy. Hey, Nina. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. So I, I had mentioned that you are the assistant director of the LGBT Resource Center at Cornell University and that you are my resident expert on polyamory because I am not. So let's start with the first piece. What do you do at Cornell University? What does that entail being the assistant director of the, the LGBT Resource Center? There's got to be a gazillion hats that you wear there. Yeah. So I like to call myself a professional queer. Um, because I literally get to spend pretty much all day, every day talking about gay shit. Yeah. Um, and so a big part of my job as the assistant director, I'm really focused on the day-to-day -day operations of our center and okay. our programming. So I do a lot of training and a lot of educational programming around identity. Uh, right now I'm working with some of my student interns on a queer, healthy sexual relationships uh, module. And we're talking about like, sex ed 101 and like teaching folks the things that they should have learned in high school that 95% of the country never learned right. and you know building from there and it's just it's really exciting to be able to do this kind of work yeah and it's so needed Chrissy I actually admittedly was was a health teacher and my favorite unit was always sex because every Friday I would have the kids it was in high school I would have the kid kids um write anonymous questions and put them in a box and I would answer them. And I kind of took on this crazy Aunt Nina role that really wasn't conducive to a professional teaching career. And so I, they knew I would tell them the truth. And I think parents had a hard time with that. Um, but in my head, I'm like, they're, a lot of them are doing it. So you can ignore that fact and they'll find out inaccurate information on the back of the bus and end up getting pregnant or STIs or emotionally scarred, mm -hmm. or you can just tell them the truth, right? Yeah. And what I will say is that pleasure was not a part of the curriculum and uh, nor was the clip. I, I don't know if I talked to you about this or not, but- I the, think you I yeah. feel like you mentioned that one of yeah. the diagrams didn't even have a clitoris on it. Nope. Which is just like, Yep. That's, Mind boggling. But like that would literally be as ridiculous as not having a dick on a guy's anatomy, like a cis male's anatomy. Not but, having but Nina, they use it to urinate. It's important. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. This is also true. we live in a patriarchal society. So right. We're here to talk about poly, not patriarchy. <laughs> right. But I feel like it runs rampant like through every part of, mm -hmm. of you know of Oh, it absolutely does. Show. Yeah. For sure. I do talk about poly at work um, yeah. in our relationships module. Um, we're actually talking about 
you know, what, what does a healthy relationship look like? What does communication? And that's something um, I think, you know, we can talk about in a little while around like the communication of America has a default monogamy mm-hmm. um, assumption that all relationships, straight or queer relationships are going to be monogamous. And it's really important to me as a very poly person to put out there that like, that's not the only option. And it's something that you should probably have a conversation about with your partner. Right. Because, you know, a lot of people don't know it's an option and maybe feeling a lot of different things around desires they may be having. I know before I was, before I knew what polyamory was when I was in high school, um, you know, I had, I would have a partner and I'd be like, I'd really like my partner. They're great. And also like, Ooh, that cute girl walking by in the hallway. Hello. Right. And everything in our culture told me that wasn't acceptable. Told yep. me that like I was veering into cheating territory mm-hmm. just by looking at another person. God forbid I, you know, have physical relationships mm-hmm. with another person. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, more than halfway through college when somebody told me about polyamory and it was like a light bulb went off in my head. Cause I was like, I'm sorry, there's what? Yeah. There's, op- there's options for more than one partner. You mean I can be with a boy and see a really cute girl walk by and be like, Oh, hi. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it was, it was not, I didn't even know what the word was. I mean, until like the last decade of my life. I mean, it wasn't even like, oh, I didn't know in college. I didn't know 10 years ago either. You know? So at what point did you go, this isn't for me anymore. This monogamy thing. Like, how did you speak up to your next partner? Like, Hey, just letting you know, this doesn't work for me. So this is what it has to look like. Like how, what was that transition? Like, I mean, I think my first real exposure to it, I started dating a couple when I was in college. Um, And, you know, it wasn't necessarily like labeled polyamory at the time. I I started to become more aware of like this much broader category um, Mm -hmm. as a whole, as I started to get involved with this couple. But, you know, it was kind of like, I'm bi, I'm queer, I was young. I was like, wow, that guy's really hot. And so is his girlfriend. And they were like, oh yeah, we think you're really hot too. And I was like, oh my God, this is a thing, what? (laughs) And you know, uh, it's so funny because I graduated college a little over 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. So it's not not even that long ago, but I think back to just what the internet is like now and the resources that I have available to me now and the resources that I had available to me 12 years ago and it's it's still like such a vast I had to do a lot more like intentional research to find out about this stuff it wasn't just like popping up as easily and that just kind of like I don't want to go down a rabbit hole of technology but like it blows my mind how much things have changed in the last 10 15 years right so your first polyamorous relationship whether you knew to label it as that at that point Mm -hmm. or not was with a couple that was already established and now a lot of the stuff we see online or like in social media always talks about, you know, unicorn hunting, right? Mm-hmm. Like a couple that searches for, usually it's a, a bi female, usually, isn't yeah, it? Usually. Okay. Single, single bi female. Yeah. Like I hate that term, but, um, yep. but it doesn't always happen like that. They're actually just normal conversations that come up. You don't have to like go searching for this, you know, this one unicorn of a person. So how did it happen for you? How did you meet these people and how did that conversation come up? Like, yeah. hey. <laughs> well, 
one so i mean there's there's so many different ways to kind of even to just fall into poly so you you touched already on unicorn hunters yeah which are you know definitely um not my favorite thing mm-hmm. which is really funny because i am a real life unicorn right. um in terms of like queer rainbow gayness unicorn yeah. <laughs> um but also at the time i actually was a single by female mm-hmm. so technically I was also a unicorn in that sense yeah um and you know we were all we were all in our early 20s I think I was 20 21 they were maybe a couple of years older than me mm-hmm. um and it was it was much less of like an intentional hunting of like they were on a dating app and they were like we want a girlfriend for both of us yeah you know I happened to meet them at a party and he was really hot and she was really hot and I was like damn you're both really hot and they were like yeah we think you're really hot too And, you know, it just kind of like kicked off from there. So it wasn't necessarily that any of us were particularly looking for specifically that, you know, I was looking for hot people. They were looking for hot people. We all happened to be attractive and attracted to each other. And so it worked out. Right. Um, But, you know, that's definitely not been the way that it's always worked for me. Right. Now, did it was in that point, was it just a sexual thing or did you guys actually start a romantic relationship or was it just like oh if I see you guys out at parties I know that we're into the same thing no it was definitely um it wasn't you know like a super serious you know committed right polyamorous relationship it was it was more of a casual thing yeah um but you know like we made we made plans you know I spent my 21st birthday with them like we were so yeah I must have been 20 when we met because I spent my 21st birthday with them but you know we were we were together we weren't you know, they were definitely a unit and they were a unit before I came along. They were a unit after I left. Um, But, you know, the three of us were somewhat of a, you know, you might use the label triad because I was, you know, we were all kind of dating each other in this like triangle. Okay. What about, and how long did that last? Um, that was like eh, somewhere around eight to 10 months. Okay. Okay. Um, it got, it got a little complicated because, um, me and the woman met a boy and there was some stuff around one penis policy with the guy in our triangle and Uh, everything kind of got really murky and messed up and the the new guy and I ended up splitting off and forming our own thing and this other couple kind of went off and did their own thing as well okay so the one penis policy is a thing yeah oh yeah big thing And so that typically means it's just in whatever relationship formation you're in can only have one penis involved. So the one penis policy, it's, you know, it's kind of like a a flexible term that can fall into maybe more than one necessarily situation. Mm -hmm. But the the most common way that it shows up is that, um, you know, like a cishet man, so a cisgender heterosexual man has a partner who's a woman and they start talking about opening up their relationship and he says, yeah, that's great. Like sleep with as many women as you want. Like I'm going to sleep with as many women as I want. And then she says, Hey, that guy over there. And he's like, no, no, no. Like I'm the only dick he can have. And it, you know, on the surface, it seems innocent enough because it's like, you know, you already have one male partner who loves you and wants to give you everything that you need. And so why would you need another male partner if you could go find other, you know, women? And if you start to dig down a little bit deeper to it, you start to get into roots of patriarchy and misogyny because there are, for for a lot of people, very unrecognized, deeply held biases and beliefs around ownership of a woman's body and the power of a man's penis and all of this kind of stuff that like 
seems innocuous at first and then you start to dig into it and you're like oh actually not quite as innocuous as we thought right right and so okay so that's that's a new term for me all right got it and then from there because you're in a relationship now you have a girlfriend yeah right now and you've been with her for a, a while yeah a little over a little over a year and a half okay Less than two years more than a year and a half but and then you you also had taught me a few new vocabulary words when we spoke uh you know a week ago or so uh-huh. was um so you talked about being in a poly network or a polycule or all these really cool words that now have a definition attached to them. So can you explain your current relationship dynamics and, and how how that works for you? Sure. Can I do the the vocabulary rundown first? Yes, please. I have a whole <laughs> So we've got the whole vocabulary. Okay, good. A couple of words real quick. It'll give you a roadmap as I'm describing everything else. So I'm, I'm on here to talk about polyamory, right? Um, and literally poly, polyamory coming from Greek meaning many, um, poly, Greek, many, uh, loves, amory, Latin, mm-hmm. um, polyamory, literally meaning many loves. Um, and we joke, you know, the only thing wrong about polyamory is that it combines two ancient languages together and that's just wrong, (laughs) but on the face, polyamory is great. And so it poly actually kind of falls into a potentially even larger category of either ethical or consensual non-monogamy. Sometimes you'll see the abbreviations ENM or CNM, but really this idea of some kind of non-monogamous relationship style that is everyone's consenting to is ethical, has been discussed. So it's not cheating. It's not somebody going out behind their partner's back and getting some on the side. It's everybody in the relationship, whether that's two people who are bringing in a third or it's five people who are all dating each other are communicating and are aware of kind of what's happening in this network. And so ethical non-monogamy is kind of this big umbrella term that can cover everything from swinging of, you know, like a couple that goes out to a sex party and swaps with another couple to, um, you know, play partners and friends with benefits outside of a primary relationship, all the way to kind of like, if you were to imagine as a spectrum, which it's not necessarily a spectrum, but is kind of low key as swinging and friends with benefits or is potentially more serious and committed as polyamory where somebody might be in a committed triad. Um, the term polyfidelis gets thrown around sometimes because we think about polyamorous people as like not being serious in their relationships, but there are plenty of polyamorous relationships out there where there are, you know, three, four people in a relationship together and they're like a closed relationship. They're all committed to each other. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's almost like it would function similarly to monogamy, except there's three, four of them instead of two. So they're all monogamous with each other. Yeah. Yeah, so like they're committed to one another, they're polyfidelis. That makes sense. So the polyfidelis is is being committed to multiple people, mm-hmm. but there's there's a commitment there. There's it's like a joint monogamy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, that this this like broad kind of whole thing. And so I fall kind of into this like category of you might call it more open polyamory. Um, so one of the people in our polycule, he calls it open pasture um, poly. And that like, you know, he's in relationships with people that he's in serious long-term relationships. He's committed to those people. But if he goes to a party and meets someone really cute, like, hey, 
it could just be one night for us or you could be my next long-term partner. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of the people in our polycule function somewhat similarly to that of, you know, most of us are in at least one very like committed serious relationship, but then we might have some other partners. We might have a couple of um, partners who, you know, we just see occasionally and they're maybe just friends with benefits. Right. And so we use the term polycule um, and other folks might use the term like a poly network or a constellation, but it's literally talking about this like interrelated web of humans. Because when you start to branch out of like a polyfidelis triad or quad, you start to get very interconnected. Yeah. Because I have a girlfriend, she has two boyfriends. Each of those boyfriends have other partners. Mm -hmm. At one point, one of those other partners was like dating someone else and it looped back around. Um, I have other partners that also branch off in all of these different directions. And so it gets complicated and we literally draw it out on a web. And we'll draw, you know, my name next to my girlfriend's name and draw a line to her and then draw lines to each of her boyfriends and then lines to their partners. And we end up with, it looks like a really very confusing molecule, which <laughs> is where the word polycule came from. And so, so I, I can tell you off the top of my head, like several questions that probably come up, have already come up a ridiculous amount of times already in your life and people asking you, but for the sake of, you know, me and people mm -hmm. who are listening, talk to me about jealousy. And I, I understand that jealousy is, is such a human emotion, right? Whether you're polyamorous or not, but I think most people that are like, oh, I don't think I could ever do it would be, would be the jealousy. Like, oh my gosh, what if, mm -hmm. what if my partner likes him or her better? Or, or what if they're better at, you know, going down on her? Or what if they have more fun with him? Or, I mean, that's the stuff that I feel like even in monogamous relationships that comes up like, oh my gosh, what if, what if, what if, what if, mm -hmm. but in a polyamorous relationship, it's almost like, I know for a fact that you are having these relationships with other people and shit. What if you do have more fun with them? Or what if you do have a better sex life with them? And you know, how does that, how does that play out with, with you guys? Yeah. And I mean, it's a response that I get so often, right? Uh, I tell people that I'm polyamorous, that I have multiple partners and they're like, oh my God, I could never do that. I get too jealous. Yeah. And I'm like, I mean, I experience jealousy too. Like we're humans, we experience jealousy. I think a really big part of it in polyamory is how you handle it. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, it's it's not healthy to necessarily pretend that we don't experience jealousy because we're humans. We're messy, complicated creatures. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're gonna feel like those, you know, the green-eyed monster at some point. But the way that you handle it can have a huge impact on it. Because if I'm jealous that my girlfriend is spending time with her boyfriend on a certain night for, you know, a myriad of reasons, maybe I thought that it was going to be our night together. And she was like, well, no, he, you know, he asked me to do X, Y, Z. And I'm feeling jealous about that. I can lash out and be angry at both of them and send both of them rude text messages and be like, how dare you? I'm so mad. Or I can kind of sit down, think through my feelings. And the next time I talk to my girlfriend, be like, hey, so I just wanted to check in with you about what happened and you know it made me feel this kind of way and you know if I've done some reflecting on my feelings I can say hey I'm just giving you a heads up that I experienced this I'm not asking you to change anything I just wanted to let you know or it could be like actually 
I kind of thought about it and dug down into that jealousy and it's because a boundary was crossed or it's because, you know, I felt like I wasn't informed about something. And then again, you have that conversation, you have that communication Mm -hmm. because one of the biggest things about polyamory is the communication. If you don't have that communication, that's when it's cheating because you're not telling your partner. And I I don't want to get too deep into don't ask, don't tell relationships because it's not a model that I follow. So it's not something that I'm you know, able to talk super deeply about, there are folks out there who have agreements with their partners that are, that, you know, the communication is, it's communicated ahead of time that like, go out and do, do the things that you want to do. Like, I'm happy for you to do those. I don't particularly want to hear about it, but there's still some communication that something is happening. Even if they don't want to know who with, or what, you know, any of those details, there's still been that communication and that agreement. Consent and communication are like the bedrocks of polyamory and open relationships, right? I really feel like monogamous relationships could learn a lot about communication from polyamorous relationships. And it's something that in my coaching, I deal with all the time, even in my personal life, we do this all the time, is that communicating uncomfortable things is really hard. And so human nature is to avoid hard, right? Because it feels awful. But so, so much time is spent in relationships where you are not fully being able to be who you are or express yourself sexually. And then there's resentment, you know, and and all these other things. I always say to my husband, I'd rather have the difficult conversations and realize now that it isn't going to work than, you know, be 80 and be like, you know what, we're about to, you know, we're kind of like on our last leg and for the last 70 some odd years, like, well, I mean, I don't want that. I would rather have the difficult conversations and realize, you know what, it's not a match anymore. We've changed, you know? So many assumptions are made in relationships, especially heterosexual monogamous relationships, but even relationships that don't fit into that really narrow category because we, we aren't taught to communicate. We aren't taught that there are other ways. And so we make assumptions that we're going to be monogamous. We make assumptions that the only kind of sex we're going to have is missionary in the dark with the lights out. You know, we make all of these assumptions. And so people just move along based on these assumptions. And that's where that, you know, underlying resentment Mm -hmm. might start building. But in a polyamorous relationship, right off the bat, we're having to ask each other questions about, you know, okay, so you already have one partner. What is your kind of like style of poly? Is it, you know, do you have a hierarchical poly of like that person is your primary partner and nobody else is going to kind of reach that same level or, or come in between the bond mm-hmm. of you and your primary partner? Or are you this like very egalitarian, open pasture poly where, you know, you have a long-term committed partner, but this new partner may also become a long-term committed partner. Those conversations are really important because they guide a lot of compatibility. They guide a lot of, you know, does the the way that this person practices polyamory fit with the way that I do and the relationships that I want to be in? We have to have those conversations right off the bat because otherwise you could, you know, end up making assumptions about polyamorous relationships and, you know, a couple of months down the line realize that, you're in something you didn't want to be in. Yeah. Has that ever happened to you? Um, or somebody made an assumption about what you must want in this relationship. And then down the line, something was like, mm, we never talked about that. Or we never agreed on that. Or that's not what I want in this relationship. 
as much necessarily in any of the polyamorous relationships I've been in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was poly in college and then I moved to um, Maine where I lived for seven years in a really r- rural area. Mm. And so there weren't a lot of poly folks. There weren't a lot of queer folks. And it was really difficult to kind of be that kind of person, live that kind of lifestyle when there weren't other people to really engage with. And so I was in a monogamous relationship for six years before I moved to New York. Um, And so there were, you know, I like to think we had pretty good communication for a straight passing couple, right? Um, you know, because I've done a lot of work around this, both professionally and personally around this idea of like, by people in relationships because we talk about like straight passing like my um at the time my fiance was a cisgender heterosexual white man mm-hmm. and i'm you know i'm a very femme presenting straight passing woman mm-hmm. and so from the outside for all intents and purposes we appeared to be a straight relationship yeah but i'm queer as hell <laughs> any relationship that i'm in is going to be a queer relationship because one mm-hmm. There's a queer person in the relationship. But then two, the way that I still might exist in a relationship with a straight man is still going to be different because I'm still going to push back against a lot of Mm -hmm. thing, a lot of the patriarchy, a lot of traditional relationship stuff. It's not the kind of relationship I want to be in. And so it's still a queer relationship. Yeah. Uh, But, and so, you know, for a straight passing couple, we did a pretty good job of communicating a lot of things. I very early on was like, hey, you know, I have a, a history of polyamorous relationships. I'm not sure I ever want to be like fully monogamous. Mm-hmm. And he was like, okay, cool. And then we lived in Maine. We never met anyone. <laughs> and I was in grad school and like grad school was my other partner. I did not need another partner between a fiance, a dog and grad school. I was right. polysaturated as we call it. <laughs> You're not still with him though, right? No. Okay. No. So our, um, our relationship, my relationship with him and my relationship with my girlfriend now overlapped by about a year. When I moved to New York for work after grad school, um, we knew we were going to be in a long distance relationship. He was still based up in Maine with his work in the house. And I was down in New York with my work. And, you know, we knew we were going to be in a a long distance relationship for a while. And I was finally in a place where I was meeting other polyamorous people. And so we had the conversation of like, hey, when we first started dating, I said that this was a thing that I was interested in and like still going to be interested in in the long term. Let's circle back to that conversation. Mm -hmm. And we did. And then a couple of months later, I met my girlfriend. And for about a year, the, you know, I was dating both of them. And I got a lot of the questions about, you know, well, what if you like her more? Um, You know, he started dating someone up in Maine and they were like, well, what if, you know, he likes her more? And I was like, the beautiful thing about Polly is like, there is no more. He can like both of us the same. Like he could like her just as much as he likes me. That doesn't threaten my relationship with him Mm. because I know that there are things unique to me that no other human being is going to be able to offer because I am a unique human being there are things his other partner can offer him that no other human being can offer him because she's a unique human being. And so, you know, like, yeah, maybe one of us gives better blowjobs. Right. And, you know, maybe the other one is like a queen at reverse cowgirl or something, you know, different people have different qualities and skills. And so 
just because one person offers something that you don't have doesn't make you less than and doesn't mean that they're going to love you any less. Right. And, and in our case, you know, it wasn't a question of loving any one partner more or less, but the more involved in the poly community I got in New York and the more, um, you know, involved in my, with my girlfriend and with the, the people that I was starting to be connected with through her, the more we realized we were just on completely different tracks in life. Yeah. He was dating this woman up in Maine and like, he was, he's very, I would use the term like polyfidelis because he was dating both of us and he was not really interested in like other people. Yeah. Um, and, you know, was kind of like, eventually probably I'll settle down with like one of you and like get married and have babies. Yeah. And I was like, I don't see that happening for me. Like I, I like this like very expansive yeah. polycule network relationship that I have of like, I have two partners. I could meet a third person at some point. Like I'm open to that. And, you know, we were just like, we were completely on divergent paths. Yeah. And so, you know, we had a lot of really hard conversations and ultimately decided that like, it just, we weren't, we weren't the right long-term partners for each other, yeah. which sucked, you know? I mean, the idea was you were going to get married, um, yeah. you know? Um, but so do you think, cause I mean, the way you speak about it, Chrissy is so, it's just, it's so self-aware and so confident. And I feel like that seems to be, it would make sense if that those personality traits are more conducive to poly relationships. Like I, I feel like it wouldn't, it's not super, super common for someone to be able to say what you just said, right? I mean, I, I feel like there are people that are cut out to be, <laughs> to be super successful in polyamorous relationships and people that, that probably are not, you know, and mm -hmm. I totally believe in the spectrum of monogamy. I really do. And I feel like mm -hmm. there's, there's overlap between ethical or consensual non-monogamy and the spectrum of monogamy. When I bring up some suggestions on how to kind of like figure out where you are in the gray area. It's not just black and white. Actually, very few of us thrive in the black or white. It's very gray for most yeah, of us. Absolutely. Um, but it's, if I ever say, well, have you ever thought about, you know, um, going to a strip club together, right? So you're not involving anybody else, right? You're not, it's not about other relationships. And you absolutely hear, well, great. Cause I want my husband to see gorgeous women half naked. And it's that it is that feeling of I think a lot of us come from a place of lack, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're not enough. And and same with guys. I wrote an article on hot wifing, right? That seems mm -hmm. to be a very common question that gets asked about. And some of the guys are the same thing. You know, some of the guys are like I can wrap my head around it, kind of being hot to see my wife. I don't want to say objectified necessarily, but to see her as a, a different. You know, like I think a lot of people. Mm -hmm men sometimes have that Madonna whore complex, right? Where it's oh, like, yeah. they, they put their, their female partner on a pedestal, especially if they've had children together or something. It's like, oh my God, we can't look at her sexually. So it's kind of like taboo and arousing to see her in just full out sexual energy, right? But the thought of what if, again, the classic ones, what if he has a bigger dick or what if he's got better muscles or what if, and that's the not, father of your children, no. Is right. he, you know, this, the emotional support that got you through the death of your parent? No, you know, like, great. He has muscles. That's super fun for a night in bed. Like, Ooh, he's so pretty. Mm -hmm. And then you go home to like the stability of your long-term partnership. Right. Um, 
And I mean, I, we could, we could have a whole, again, a whole conversation about dick size and men's <laughs> egos and fragility around. Yeah. You're preaching to the choir on this. I get that. Does, does dick size matter? I was like, well, considering there are like barely any nerve endings inside the vagina, right? So like the penis does not equal the vagina. The penis actually equals the clit. It would be as if we, I treated your dick as foreplay and then rubbed your inner thigh or like, and expected you to come. Like I, there's still this huge thing about penetrative, like penis in vagina is what every person with a vagina wants and that's what's going to get them there and it's still it's so loud in our society it's so loud it's 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 a really hard battle to fight yeah. you know well and I mean that's that's a whole soapbox I could get on around all sorts of different things about sex and sexuality because like yes so many women have have not been having the kind of sex that they deserve or that they the orgasms that they should be having because men focus so much on penetration and focus so much on the vagina and you know it it stems from all of this bs around like procreation of you know the whole reason that like that's the act is because that's the one that makes the babies right but, you know you spend enough time on a woman's clit and you can do some real exciting things <laughs> um you know you introduce a vibrator, mm -hmm. a vibrating cock ring. Like you introduce any sort of toys, you can make things really interesting. But then again, like the guys, you know, well, what if she likes the dildo better than me? It's like, but who's using the dildo? Right. You're still the one using the toy, even though it's helping you. Like you don't dig a hole in the ground without a shovel. Right, right. You could yeah. dig it with your hands. Does that make it any more of a hole if you dug that <laughs> hole with your hands than you did with a shovel? No. Right. It is, it is very, it's very penis centered. It is. And the same things when guys ask me, I wish I could last longer. I'm like, for whom? For the, <laughs> what, what? I, I've, I've yet to meet a woman who has a vagina that goes, there's nothing better than getting jackhammered for an hour and a half. Like it's, it does, it does get sore after a while. I'm probably not coming unless something's going on with my clit so really what is what's going on with the I want to last forever you know and it's it, it, at least eight times out of ten the woman should come before you get to penetrative sex like in a oh yeah. in a penis and vagina coupling yeah but like in and um you know a man and a woman penis and vagina relationship there is again that assumption of like we're going to have uh you know piv penis and vagina sex and that's going to be, you know, going to thrust until she comes, until he comes, everybody's happy. Right. There's an assumption and you just, you like get, get in the bed and you do it. But you, you put two women in a bed together. We both have vaginas. Like we need to talk about, do we want to bring some kind of penetrative toy into the equation? Because neither of us came with that <laughs> equipment factory installed. Right. And so, you know, one of my favorite, um, sex educators talks about factory installed dicks versus aftermarket dicks. So, you know, we need to discuss, Yeah, are we going to bring an aftermarket dick into the experience? If we do, how is that going to be, you know, is, is someone going to wear that? Is someone going to have a strap on? Are we going to use a dildo? Do we just want fingers and vibrators and all of those things? The same thing with, you know, you put two gay men in a bed together. There's still that conversation of like, who's going to do what, because yep. you can't make assumptions. Right. And so in some ways, you know, not always, I'm sure that there are still queer people who have bad sex. Sure. 
it, you know, category, there are, there are straight people who have great sex. Absolutely. So, you know, there's going to be mixes right. in every bunch, but I do think that based on the communication, mm-hmm. sometimes you're starting from a better place because right. you've actually discussed what is it that you like? What is it that turns you on versus I'm assuming that my dick in your vagina is what's going to make you come. And right. she's like, no, 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 no. I need a vibrator. Yeah. Like, you know, we're not, you put those assumptions out the window, you can actually have a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I absolutely, I see this with couples sometimes if I'm coaching them and I say, well, stupid question, but do you know what turns her on or do you know what turns him on? And they're like, yeah. You know, the guy will be like, yeah. And the girl, you know, the woman looks at me and she's like, (laughs) no, it doesn't, you know? So I'm like, it's not even a question that is normally asked like, Hey, and it changes. Right. So I know for, for me, what turned me on five years ago is boring as hell right now. Right. And the stuff that turns me on now, I would never imagine being turned on by five years ago. Right. So you have to talk about those things, you know, and it's an interesting point that with queer relationships, you're already starting out almost like by default, knowing we're going to have to communicate about a lot of stuff. Right. So, but in a, in a non-queer relationship, a lot is assumed and I don't even realize it. And I'm in one, but a lot, mm-hmm. assumed, yeah. a lot and fantasies aren't really discussed. I mean, I know like with my husband and I are, are very communicative. I like forced it out of him over 17 years, <laughs> but we're, we're at a good place. It yeah. took a while, took a while to get mm-hmm. there you know, but I definitely, there's fantasies are not really talked about often. No, Um, I've coached couples where individually they watch porn. And when I ask, Oh, have you guys ever watched it together? And they're like, no, Mm -mm." it's such a big part sharing fantasies and watching. If you're both into porn, watch it together. I'm not saying you have to pick your most non vanilla scene to show each other at the first time, but it's really hot is really sexy to know what turns your partner on. Yeah. And if it's not something that turns you on, that's okay. It's okay, <laughs> you know? I mean, if that's in any relationship. You're not always gonna be turned on by the same thing. It's like, it's so emblematic of American culture that like shame, we, have, we just carry so much shame about sex and about talking about sex. And even a person that like you are, are physically having sex with, maybe not at that moment, but like a person that you repeatedly have sex with and you're still like so ashamed and like terrified to tell them what it is that turns you on right and you know I I wouldn't say all the time by any means but there's lots of times where someone says like oh actually like xyz really turns me on and their partner's like oh my god really I would love to do that right you're not gonna get there if one of you doesn't say like hey this thing's real hot yeah I think it's so funny men are so attached to a woman's orgasm and, you know, feel like sex is a failure if she didn't come. And also like at the same time, which makes no sense at the same time, have no idea how actually to give a woman pleasure because it's not something that's taught. And because in American society, it's not acceptable for them to admit that they don't know. And so we just get stuck in this vicious cycle of men thinking they know what they're doing, thinking that their dick is magic and jackhammering away and a woman being like you know what I'm just gonna fake it so that he feels good and then 
we start this vicious cycle of like, they don't actually know what it is that gets their partner off, but they're still so deeply like in need of that validation of their partner's orgasm. You'd think they would ask like, Hey, I really want to get you off. Tell me everything because I want it, but it doesn't. It's very much like you said, where they're supposed to know women don't even know. So many women are like, I don't know. I've never masturbated. I don't know. I've never had an orgasm. It is so rare. So sad. I know. I know. And I hear more more often than people think. It's like, I know I've never had an orgasm or I think I've had one. And I'm like, so probably not, you know? And it's very rare that I hear a man say I've never had an orgasm. Very rare. Mm -hmm. For women, it's, what is it? I think 10 or 15% of women have never had an orgasm, you know? And with, with the orgasm gap in and of itself, what is it? Women, are, at least in, in heterosexual, because that's really really the only place where the orgasm gap actually exists. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, men is like 95% of the time in a sexual session, they will have an orgasm. Women, it's like 60 to 65. And honestly, I think that's pushing it. I really do. I think that's mm-hmm. a little inflated. Um, you know, I think for me, it all comes down to communication because, you know, some of the best sex I've had in my life, either with men or with women, has been because I've sat down with that partner and been like, okay, here are the things that turn me on. Here's the spot on my neck. If you touch, like good things really happen. Right. I right. tell them that I give my partner that roadmap and then we're good to go because they can push all of my buttons. And suddenly I'm like, this is great. Right. But I have to have that conversation because I can't trust that any partner, you know, man, woman, non-binary person, any partner is going to know that if I don't tell them. Right. And I think, yeah, I think there's this big generalization that women like to be penetrated. I think women feel shame, you know, like, well, I don't, I don't come from that. Mm -hmm. Like you said, there's this like avoidance and denial. I think a lot with men, they want to please, they really do. I genuinely believe, I'm going to give guys a bit of the doubt. I genuinely believe that men do like to want to please a woman. I think their ego is keeping them from asking the questions and doing the things, especially if they realize it's not so focused around their penis. I think that's a hard pill to swallow sometimes, <laughs> you know? So how, what are some of the myths that you probably have been inundated with, with polyamorous relationships? What are some of the things or judgments that people make on polyamorous folks? Mm-hmm that we're less serious about our relationships, that we're not able to commit, you know, that there's, there's a lot of discourse out there about, um, and you know, it it falls into, to buy plus people as well, but like that, you know, because we don't choose one, we're flaky or we're not able to commit when, you know, I've, I've talked about like multiple long-term partners. At one point I had two partners that like, I was super committed to, I, you know, I had my fiance who lived 600 miles away from me. So I was super committed to him in a very long distance way. And I had my girlfriend that lives, you know, less than six miles away from me, who I was committed to in a much different, but still very serious kind of way. And, you know, I love both of them very, very deeply and am able to hold both of those things at the same time. Yeah. I think people look at any kind of relationship aside from monogamy is so sex focused. Mm -hmm. So if you're not in a straight monogamous relationship, you're just like hypersexual. What I see on the straight, you know, monogamous side 
is we all are pretty sexual. Monogamy is not natural. It's quite the opposite, right? And it isn't something that we were born with or, or wired to do. So monogamy is a choice. It should be a choice. It's not. It's assumed. And that's why it's so difficult for some people because there are, there are people out there for whom monogamy is a really good option. Yeah. You know, lots of, lots of people are like good to commit to one person and be like, you're the one person I care about. You're the one person I'm going to have sex with. Mm -hmm. Um, And that works for a lot of people. And there are a lot of people for whom poly works, but there are a lot of people in monogamous relationships because they think it's the only option. They think it's what they have to do. And they've never had a conversation with their current partner or, you know, a new partner about, Hey, is this what we want to commit to? Do we both want to be monogamous? Yeah. We don't have that conversation enough because we don't talk about it enough. It's not taught in health class. It's not taught in relationship seminars. We don't talk about it. And so people make these assumptions and then, you know, a lot of, I'm not going to say all of those people, but like some of those people probably fall into infidelity statistics because they weren't able to have that conversation with a partner. And so instead of being a consensual open relationship, it became a cheating relationship because the need didn't go away. Mm -hmm. It was just the conversation around consent never happened. Right. Right. And you, you had the other piece too, is I think that even if people realize, Hey, I think I would be best, you know, better suited in a different relationship agreement. I think there's a lot of shame and they don't want to, they can't tell anybody. Right. And so for you, coming out, I don't know if, if it was like a one day thing where you're like, I am polyamorous mom and dad. No, (laughs) right. No, I mean, so just like coming out as queer is still an ongoing relationship. I still have to, you know, I'm not super visibly queer a lot of the time. And so I still need to tell people and, you know, I have a pretty lucky, easy life hack that my job has the word, the acronym (laughs) LGBTQ plus in it. And so a lot of folks make an assumption when they hear what I do that I am queer. Yeah. It's a correct assumption. Right. Um, but you know, I, I still have to have that conversation of like, well, yeah, I'm queer. Also have to have that conversation of, oh yeah, I'm poly. And you know, that one's really interesting because it can come up in so many different ways. And there are so many different levels of openness about it because I have lots of friends who are not as open about their poly in their workplace because, you know, it wouldn't be something that would be accepted. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and so there's a lot of people who like, they'll have their, you know, primary partner and that's the person that they bring to work functions and, you know, the weddings and all of that kind of thing. But they may still have a pretty serious partner that doesn't get to go to those things. Yeah. And that can be really difficult. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, it kind of ended up happening not quite by default, but like it it ended up being more necessary because again, so I was in this long-term relationship. I moved to New York, started my new job with an engagement ring on my finger, told everyone about my man, my male fiance. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, a year later started, you know, at first I didn't talk about her too much because I was just getting to know her, but the more time I was spending with her, you know, the more somebody would be like, oh, what'd you do this weekend? I'm not going to lie and say I didn't do anything or say I went out with a friend. I'm like, oh yeah, my girlfriend and I spent the weekend together. Right. But then you get a lot of those like, huh? Yeah, I thought you were engaged. Your your girlfriend, what happened to your fiance? And I'm like, oh no, he's still there. I'm just, I have both now. I have my girlfriend and my fiance. And, and, you know, half the time, 
oh, I could never do that. I'd be too jealous. And I'm like, okay, let's have a conversation. Yeah. You know, and I, I would say I'm probably not typical because I, I am an educator at heart. And so I kind of love having those conversations. Yeah. I'm the person that's like, oh, actually, can I tell you all about being poly? Like, ask me the questions that you're too right. embarrassed to ask. Because mm-hmm. I love talking about it. I'll go on podcasts and talk about it. <laughs> um, but a lot of other, you know, a lot of other poly folks don't want those intrusive questions, just yeah. want to be able to talk about both of their partners, all of their partners, and, you know, be done with it. Yeah. And just be like, okay, cool. And then not have to answer the questions about jealousy or the questions about sex or the assumption that, you know, because I'm polyamorous, I'm having threesomes every weekend. Right. Right. I'm bisexual. I'm having threesomes every weekend, you know, all of those questions. And yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. I love talking about it, but I'm also very not typical. Right. Right. So, So was it harder for you to come out as bisexual or polyamorous? Honestly, I think it was, well, so because you can't look at it as like a single point in time, right? it really, it depends on the scenarios Yeah. because like, it was harder to come out to my family as polyamorous than it was as bisexual. Um, My family's super queer friendly. We, we grew up, one of my mom's sisters is a lesbian. Yeah. Um, She's been with her wife for, you know, more than two thirds of my life. Yeah. And so, you know, we've all, I've always had my aunt who's a lesbian. My family's always been very queer friendly. So when I came out as bi, my parents were like, great, cool. When my brother came out as gay, my parents were like, cool. All of them are gay. And it was just, you know, yes, yes. Um, now when, now that I don't have a straight partner, if we have family gatherings after COVID, my parents are the only straight people. Really? So how many siblings do you have? Just the two. two. Just me okay. and my brother, but I'm I'm queer, he's gay. So, you know, they struck the jackpot. They're lucky. I mean, <laughs> and so it was harder for you to explain the polyamorous piece? Yeah, it's, you know, it's not something that my parents are as familiar with. Yeah. It's not something that, you know, my mom just has a really hard time wrapping her head around. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I think she has a lot of the same assumptions that you were talking about, about mm-hmm. this idea of like, it always being sexual and that, you know, it's just like, I'm out there slutting it up because I have multiple partners and like, yes, maybe sometimes I am, but also (laughs) (laughs) I can have both. The whole point of being bi and polyamorous is that I have all of it. I don't like making decisions. I don't like making choices. Yeah. But, you know, so like, yes, maybe I am, but also, you know, I'm in a very serious relationship with my girlfriend. I care deeply about her we are each other's primary source of emotional support. You know, she's the one I want to talk to when I had a bad day. Yeah. She's the one, I'm the one she wants, you know, when she's got a migraine. Like those are the things yeah. that, you know, we're also in a very committed relationship. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so like at my job now, it was a lot harder to come out as Polly because I was already essentially out as queer as soon as right. I walked in the door. Right. Um, but you know, my first job out of undergrad was in a residential life department. I was a hall director and, you know, it never really came up. I wasn't doing queer work yeah. and I was primarily dating men. And, you know, it's as a bi plus person, it's really hard if you're in monogamous straight passing relationships to bring up the fact that you're part of the queer community. Because right. if you bring it up without any sort of impetus, 
then people are like, why are you talking about your sex life? And it's like, right. I'm not, I'm just, I'm, I'm telling you about my identity. I'm telling you that I have the capacity to be attracted to multiple people. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I was working at fairly, working at a fairly conservative school. The uh, queer community and pride parades didn't come up very often. Okay. Gotcha. And so, you know, I would, if I wanted to come out, I would have had to make the, you know, create the opportunities yeah. for myself right. to, to do. And Which what, I did, you know, I felt that it was important and I really wanted to make sure there were very few queer students, but I wanted to make sure yeah. that they knew there was someone right. that was, you know, like them, that was there to support them. Yeah. And now what does bi plus mean? So bi plus is um, kind of just a, another umbrella term. I love umbrella terms. I am very <laughs> into umbrella terms, but it's, it's kind of like a, a catch-all to include a lot of different um, multiple um, attraction orientations. So okay. bisexual so like is kind of- Sexual or demi or all of yeah, them. So be, okay. uh, bisexual was kind of the one of the earliest ones. It mm -hmm. is early as like, the bisexual manifesto came out in the 90s, but it's been um, in the 1990s, but it's been in use since sometime in the 1800s. So, mm -hmm. you know, bisexual has been around for a very long time. Um, and, you know, as early as the 1990s, when the Bi Bisexual Manifesto was written, um, bisexual was defined as, you know, being attracted to your own gender and different genders, genders like my own, as well as different as my own, um, the duality of both hetero and homosexuality attractions. Um, but, you know, that didn't necessarily fit for all people. So right. pansexual came along of like being attracted to all genders. Right polysexual came around as like many but not all omnisexual is another one that's out there there's you know queer some folks who you know i i identify as both bisexual and queer um and so queer can fall under that and so we say bi plus because it's a lot faster than right. saying <laughs> bi pan poly omnisexual <laughs> queers very true okay so bi plus all right got it so the importance of communication, if you're interested in a polyamorous relationship, that's like something you've got to be okay with. <laughs> and it's hard. I'm not going to say it's easy. I consider myself someone who deeply, deeply values communication. And it's still really hard for me to sometimes start certain conversations. There was a time a couple of weeks ago when I needed to talk to my girlfriend about something a little bit more serious. And I texted her earlier in the day and was like, hey, can we check in later tonight on the phone? And she was like, yeah, sure. And then she texted me after work and was like, you know, oh, what, when do you want to check in? And I was like, well, I'm doing some dishes now, like maybe in a little while, like 745 rolls around. And she texts me and she's like, are we going to have this conversation? Like, I get the feeling that you're not calling me because you don't want to have this conversation. Yeah. Could we maybe do that sooner rather than later? Yeah. Yeah. Damn it, woman. You are so emotionally aware. It is exactly what I was doing. Why would you call me out on that? But, you know, like we, we've gotten to the point in our relationship where she can recognize those patterns in me and push back on them and be like, I can see that you, you told me, I put myself in a position. I knew that if I told her that I needed to talk to her about something, you were going to have to let me out of it. Right. And so, you know, we have that push and pull of like, I put it out there that we needed to talk. And so she was like, all right, I'm going to push you till you talk because you told me you needed to. Right. And so I'm not saying it's easy by any means, but it's so, so important. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And if somebody, if, if there's a couple out there right now that's listening that had, has at some point considered um, polyamory, or if maybe just one partner is kind of curious, where would you suggest they go for like accurate resources for more information? Is there like, are there websites that are credible and accurate? Are there, you know, where, where should they go? Oh, I've got, yeah, I've got a whole list of recommendations. So there's a blog called Polyland um, that is, has been an ongoing daily blog since sometime in like maybe 2016, probably that um, she just, she writes about all sorts of polyamory things from multiple partners to breakups, to relationship transitions. It's been a really, um, I did a lot of research when I was navigating a one penis policy. I did a lot of research on that website about, you know, what is, um, what it is, why it is, how to work through it. She's written a lot about that. Um, There are a ton of books. Hilariously, as much as I love talking about polyamory and as much as I recommend these books, I've actually never read any of them. (laughs) But um, opening up by Tristan Taramino is one that comes very, very highly recommended by a lot of people. Um, And I've listened to Tristan speak on a lot of podcasts and they're amazing. Mm -hmm. Tristan also has a podcast, Sex Out Loud, um, guests on a ton of podcasts. Um, I have a lot of the relationship advice that I have that I've given over the years that I've taken over the years comes from Dan Savage's um, (laughs) Savage Love Podcast. Yeah, I've been listening to that since before college, I think. Yeah. Um, I just actually know. shared one of his posts today on Instagram. I just, I, he's just, he's so cool. I just, I just he's love brilliant him. and sassy and mm-hmm. sometimes puts his foot in his mouth, but is usually really good about owning up to it. Yeah. Um, I also really love American sex podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, Ken and Sunny Megatron talk a lot about all things sexual and sexuality related yeah. um, on their podcast. I also really love the Dildorks, same kind of vibe around, you know, sexuality, kinks, polyamory. Mm-hmm. Um, those are probably the three podcasts that I listen to the most yeah. um, as a queer poly person who loves hearing about those things. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, honestly, like if you go on um, Amazon and just search like opening up or another one, The Ethical Slut is a really popular one. Heard about um, Still haven't read that either. Like it is, it is amazing the amount of reading I have not done. <laughs> the internet. I've read a lot of things on the internet. It's just easier half the time. Yes, it is. But so, you know, really kind of like whatever your method of choice, whether you want to scroll the blog, read a book, or listen to podcasts, there is a ton of information out there. And I would highly I would highly recommend listening to and consuming multiple different streams of media from multiple different sources because everybody's going to have something a little bit different to say. Right. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and I think it's important for us to have these questions to challenge the idea that monogamy should be the default, you know, and because even those who choose to be in monogamous relationships have a lot of the same struggles that we're talking about right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and I think that obviously like, I'm really big on, you have to talk about taboos to get rid of them, right? Because things, taboos are dynamic, right? Things that were taboo two years ago aren't anymore. So it's not that there's some universal truth about a taboo. It's just either it's spoken about or it's not, right? So 
I knew that relationship agreements and relationship styles are still, they're much better as far as not as taboo, but they're still, monogamy is still the gold standard that clearly with the divorce rate we have is not necessarily the gold standard. Um, so I knew that I wanted to have you on to talk about different relationship structures. And even within polyamory, there's clearly different relationship structures within polyamory, yeah, not just like one definition, you know? So I really appreciate you coming on, Chrissy. If you're new to this podcast, again, it's Real Talk with Nina. I'm Nina, and you can check out my website at realtalkwithnina.com. Instagram is Nina Real Talk. Facebook is Real Talk with Nina. YouTube is Real Talk with Nina. So if you have any questions on any of this stuff, feel free to reach out to me as well. And I can always reach out to Chrissy as my poly resource to answer any questions, all right? So Chrissy, it was a pleasure. Thank you so, 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 so much. And we will be in touch soon. I'm sure. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you. Take care. Have a great night. Hey, you too.